I really, really enjoyed the uh, worship set that the team had picked out for this morning because all I kept thinking was of each song really talking about that intimate, personal relationship with the Father and, of course, with the Son and through the Son. You know, and the question had resonating through my mind even on the last song that uh, Jeff Deo taught us when he was here a few weeks ago was, who do you belong to? Who do you belong to? Who owns me? Who, who, who has that place of prominence in my life? Who owns me? And as we were singing, you know, I want more of you, Lord, again, the picture came to me in my mind of, you know, a full vessel. And if we want to get more in there of the pure stuff, we've got to remove the junk. You know, and every single one of us, and me included, maybe me especially, we have some toxic stuff in our life that we really just need to get rid of. And the Holy Spirit will, as quickly as we ask, fill it with his presence. You know, a, a teaching from a number of years ago is, you know, that the Holy Spirit will not fill a dirty cup. And if our life is a cup, but as soon as we cleanse that cup through confession and repentance, Man, the Holy Spirit just wants to fill it to overflowing. It's not about our salvation, but it's about our relationship with Jesus Christ. So what I'm going to be sharing about today is, uh, I've shared this statement before, but there were many, many years in my, my early Christian life, uh, I would hear people talk about how much they love Jesus. You know, sing, I, I remember singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, but it didn't really have the impact on me that it maybe should have. But how much I love Jesus, and it really, it really kind of bugged me, irritated me. And I thought, yeah, right, you're just trying to sound spiritual. Oh, I love Jesus so much. I love Jesus so much. You know, it's like they were talking about the love of their life, and little did I know they were. And I discovered and began to understand something so much better is, you know, uh, how many of you say things like, I love a good steak. I'll get to you vegetarians later. I love pizza. I love, I love, I love. Now, we all know we're not going to give our lives for that pizza. But the reason we say something like that is we've experienced it. We've tasted it, and we know what it is we're saying that about. And when it comes to loving the Lord, loving Jesus, the more we get to know him, You can't help yourself the more you're going to love him and begin to really understand what that means besides just this phrase that wacky Christians throw around all the time. It's possible to love him that much. You know, I used to say and make reference to when old people said, but now i got to say old people like me say this, I love my wife now more than I did the day we got married. It's a little different love. feels a little different. But I love her more now than I did then. How could that be possible? Because I know her so much better. (laughs) I know all about her. I know her gifts. I know her weaknesses and frailties. But you know him, and you get to know him better and better and better, and you love him more. So my goal with what I'm going to teach about, and I'm going to warn you up front, I'm going to use a lot of scriptures this morning, probably more than I've used in ages. You know, you should never have that many slides in a PowerPoint. Well, I've confessed and repent right now, but they're there. Because 
I want to share with you more about Jesus. And I want you to see what the Word of God truly says about Jesus. And the title of my message this morning is simply The Post-Ascension Jesus. The Post-Ascension Jesus. Whatever that means, right? The Post-Ascension Jesus. You know, um, we get to know Jesus when he came to earth. We call it the Incarnation. And there, you, can, you can come up with more great major events in his life maybe, but I, I listed just four. The first one, go to the next slide, please. Got your phone out there? Okay, good. I was going to have to have Ethan hit you. I threatened him. I threatened our guys on the monitor today. <laughs> they weren't very fearful. <laughs> the incarnation. Jesus coming from heaven, taking on the form of a man, actually have a baby, coming to heaven and growing and living on this earth, experiencing everything that we experience, being tried and tested like we're tried and tested. The Scripture says there's no temptation that's come upon any of us that he didn't face. About the only thing he didn't do that all of us have experienced is he never sinned. He never sinned. In the incarnation, God in the flesh. And, and I think about that, and it's like, wow, if I really meditate on that, and we usually talk a little bit more about this around the Christmas season, just think what he did just becoming a man. Jesus left heaven. He left the Father. He left the Holy Spirit. The three have been in unity for eternity, fellowshipping, and a type of love and relationship that we can't understand with our, our natural minds. And he left that all knowing full well what he was going to earth to do. Knowing what it was going to be like going through paying the price for our sin. What an amazing act of love we see just in the incarnation. And then we can come to the crucifixion. The crucifixion, a few weeks ago I shared about, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was sweating drops of blood and he was crying out to the Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And I talked about the cup that's referenced over and over in Scripture as being the cup of the Father's wrath upon sin. And even the agony that he experienced in the Garden was a picture of him just looking at what was going to come and then he experienced it on the cross. What an act of love. He did not have to do this. He didn't have to. He loved us so much as we, if we think about and meditate. You know, again, we can't comprehend the penalty for sin. And I hope none of us ever do. But probably some of us will. By experiencing it, if we don't accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And then, praise God, there was the resurrection. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The resurrection, all that the res- resurrection represents. But just in a brief nutshell, it's the fact that the power of sin, the power of death was broken. The wages of sin is death. The penalty for sin was death. Somebody had to die to pay the price. But because he was a perfect, sinless sacrifice, who went with full knowledge of what was coming, willingly, out of love, he went and he paid the price in full and he spoke those words. It is finished on the cross and God put his stamp of approval on the whole sacrifice when the tomb was empty. This is what Jesus did for us. And way too often, it kind of stops there, right? 
we, we know a lot of that if we've grown up in a church. We know about Christmas and the incarnation. We know about the crucifixion. We know about the resurrection. And we know he ascended to heaven. He left earth and he ascended. But my question is, why? What's he doing there now? Is he got a lazy boy thrown next to the right hand of the Father? He's just kicked back and he's just watching creation and enjoying it all, and resting for centuries and centuries upon what he did on earth? Not hardly. And I think part of getting to know him better is to try to understand in greater and greater detail all that he has done, all he is doing currently, and begin to get a picture of what he's going to be doing in time forward. We're going to be looking at lots of scriptures, as I said. Uh, we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke. There's a scripture in Luke, chapter 24, verse 9. It simply says, Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. This is Jesus speaking. He was telling them, and he had told them before, It's better I leave, because if I don't leave, the promise won't come. The promise is the Holy Spirit. And in the Gospel of Luke, we get a story as Luke is putting it all together for us, from the time Jesus is born up to his death, resurrection, and ascension. And the Gospel of Luke stops there. And then he writes in Acts chapter 1, he starts out in verse 1, he says, In my former book, in other words, the Gospel of Luke as we know it, Theophilus, that's who he wrote it to, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. I want to stress that. All that Jesus began to do and began to teach. In other words, he wasn't done. He wasn't done. I told you what he began to do right up to the point he ascended into the clouds. But there's more. There's more to come. And as we read through the rest of that scripture in Acts, he tells them, don't leave Jerusalem. Go to Jerusalem. You wait. The promise is going to come. And it's going to come upon you. It's going to come upon you. And I stress the word upon because... Every single one of us in here that have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior have the Holy Spirit within us. Within us. I believe the disciples were saved. How many of you can say amen to that? They were saved. They had the Holy Spirit living in them. But he's saying, I want you to go and I want you to wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you, immerses you, covers you. In in the Scripture in Acts there it says, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit that's already indwelt, he's going to come upon you and he's going to baptize you. And I want you to wait till it happens because power's coming when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Power to accomplish two major things. One, spread the gospel to the whole world. That could take, a, take some doing when there's only 11 of you, right? Okay. It empowers them to fulfill the Great Commission just like it empowers us to do a better job of fulfilling the Great Commission. But it also empowered them to live lives that would glorify God. Man, we, we, if you're like me, you've got those besetting sin things that just kind of keep showing up every now and then. As soon as you let your guard down, you go, oh, gee, but I did it again. And in our own flesh, we would fight that battle and we would never win. But the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Holy Spirit will baptize you in himself. Jesus baptizes you in the Holy Spirit. What is one of the works of Jesus after the ascension? Baptizing us in the Holy Spirit. 
so that we can live lives that bring glory and honor to God. And at the end of that section of Scripture, it talks about this Jesus who was taken up into heaven. So we know he was taken up into heaven, and that's where he is. So I'm going to focus a little bit today on why is he there and what's he doing? Why is he there and what's he doing? I'm going to go and look and hopefully show it. And you could find more than these five that I'm going to point out, Lord willing. There will be enough time. But some of the things that we see in the Bible that gives us a picture, a really amazing picture of what Jesus is doing after the ascension. And I want us to try to get a hold of this. And I would encourage you maybe to just, if you're taking any notes, just jot down the scripture references and study them on your own. A bunch of them are going to be on the screen, but if you're one of those that that does nothing but distract you, don't look up there. Just, just listen. I'll read through most of them. But the Scripture, this is what the Word of God says about what Jesus is doing. And the first thing I want us to see is the authority and the exalted position that Jesus has in heaven. An authority and exalted position. In Ephesians 1, 19, it says this, And what is the surpassing greatness of his power? toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. So we know he's in heaven. We know he's at the right hand of the Father, that position of authority. And then look what it says. It describes his authority and his exalted position. He says he is far above all rule and any other authority and all power and all dominion, and every name that has ever been named or ever will be named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he puts all of these things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to us as the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills us all. The surpassing greatness of his power, all things, all rule, all authority, all things, whether it's human rulers, whether it's demonic rulers, whether it's Satan himself, it doesn't matter. They are under his rule. They are subjected to him. And every name that will ever be named. There is no other name, right? We know the scripture. There is no other name but the name of Jesus. It's the name that every knee will eventually bow. There's no other name. It doesn't matter who they are, how important they are, how much power and authority they have in this earth. They are already under his authority, whether they know it or not. And oftentimes they don't know that. When you look at that, all the things are in subjection under his feet. Now, if there's anybody who's a little bit of a skeptic like I can be once in a while, you'd say, oh, really? Really? Everything is under his authority? You've been living in a cave? Look around. There's wars and rumors of war everywhere. There are famines. There are earthquakes taking place in different parts of the world almost all the time. Christianity. Christians are being persecuted, killed, beheaded, still burned at stakes in different parts of the world. Just declare you're a Christian, and even in America, and boy, I'm not complaining because our persecution is minimal compared to the rest of the world. 
But you know what? If you and I are Christian, we are open targets for ridicule. We're the only people group that can get called names, picked on, mocked, and ridiculed without getting charged with some sort of discrimination. The name of Jesus. Really? Everything's in subjection to him. It's a little bit easy if we fall into this trap of letting the culture or circumstances dictate how we think about Jesus. Believe it or not, all that we're seeing take place around us right now should be building our faith. Building our faith. Is it building our faith? Well, let me share a scripture in Matthew 24, starting at verse 4. He's talking, and he says, Jesus is doing the talking. He says, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. False teachers, they're everywhere. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened. For those things must take place. And that is not yet the end. For nations will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of, notice what it says it's the beginning of. You and I might think this is the beginning of the end. He says, "Uh uh-uh. This is the beginning of birth pangs. Something new is about to be birthed. And Jesus is the one that's doing the preparing for that new birthing. He says, all this has got to take place. It's the beginning of birth pangs. And then they will, like it's not bad enough, he goes, then they will deliver you to tribulation. They'll kill you. You'll be hated by all nations because of my name. And And at that time, many will fall away and they will betray one another. They'll hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the ones who endear to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Well, how can that be building our faith? How can that be building our trust? How can that be building our confidence? We see in the word of God that Jesus prophesied everything that's taking place right now in the world. And we can look back at history and there would be times when people would say, yeah, that's all going on already. Trust me, it's never been like this. It's never been like this before. It's worse and it's getting worse. I don't want to stand up here and say the end is going to happen next Thursday, but it's getting closer and closer and closer. We are seeing this prophecy of Jesus beginning to take place more and more and more. Who would have thought in this country, some of you that aren't 25 years old don't have a clue, but 25 years ago would we have got ridiculed because we said we were a Christian? That we believed the Bible was true? and that we wanted to live moral and righteous lives, now we're intolerant bigots that are prejudiced, and we discriminate, etc., etc., etc. In 25 years, should he tarry? What's it going to be like in 25 more? Lord only knows. It should build our faith. So the Bible shows us his authority and his exalted position. What else do we see in the Bible? The second thing I want to mention is the reality that we have a high priest. The Bible shows us we have a high priest. Now we all, I think, most of us know in the, in the Old Testament times and even into the New Testament when, when uh, they were still doing all the temple worship, there was a high priest. 
Matter of fact, there was many, many, many high priests over the hundreds of years because they didn't live forever, they died. And that high priest, his job, once a year, once a year, he would be able to go behind the veil. There was a veil in the temple between the holy place and the holy of holies. And in that holy of holies was the presence of God. Once a year, they got to go in there in a very specific way with very specific sacrifices preceding it, sprinkling blood and doing all this stuff. But basically, it was a picture of saying, once a year, that high priest went in to atone for the sins of the people. And it was repeated over and over and over. Really, all it did was put things off for a year and reminded you of how evil we were. Just pointed out our sin, that we couldn't do it. But now it says we have a high priest. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. He didn't just pass through a temple or pass through a veil. He passed through the heavens. He left earth through the heavens all the way to the right hand of the Father. Jesus, the Son of God, that's who he is. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Notice the therefores and what we get out of all these things. We have a high priest who has ascended through the heavens and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He made the, they paid the atonement price on the cross. His resurrection shows us that it was good enough. And he's continually there as our high priest in the presence of God. Not just once a year, but he's continually in the presence of the Father as our high priest. And it says, have confidence to go to this throne of grace. We could go to the throne of grace simply because the price has been paid. And with that, we receive mercy and find grace. How many times do we need mercy and grace? Like about every second? And we can get it every second because Jesus is there 24-7 through eternity as our high priest. And because he's our high priest, we can go there too. We can pray to the Father. There is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. We don't have to go through anybody else. We don't have to. You know, it's great we're to pray for one another, but you know what? You don't have to to be heard by the Father. We all have access as children of God. He is our high priest. And we, isn't it nice? You ever go to someone and you're kind of looking for some advice? and Maybe it's something like financial advice. And you go to someone to ask them, you know, here's my situation. I don't know what I'm going to do. This is where I'm at. I don't even know how I'm going to buy groceries next week. I don't know how I'm going to buy school supplies this fall. I don't, I don't know how I do it. And the person over here that's telling you all these things you do has never had a day in their life when they were short of money. They got more money than they know what to do with. Now, they might be able to give me some advice, but they don't understand my pain. We have a high priest who was tempted in every way we've been tempted. He experienced everything we've experienced or ever will experience, according to the Scripture, except he never sinned. So we have a high priest who's representing us, who gets us. He understands us. He knows everything about us. And he is now representing us before the Father. He's also, as you may have picked up, our intercessor and the mediator. The scriptures, as our intercessor in Hebrews 7, 
it says the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater number because they were prevented by death from continuing. In other words, there were a lot more high priests in the old Jewish days because they all died and you had to have a replacement. We have one who's permanent. It says, for we do not have a high priest who can, excuse me, he continues forever. He holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is a high priest who understands us, and he intercedes for us. And in Hebrews chapter 7, um, verse, let's see, 1 Timothy, I want to go there first. I think that's next. 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God, one mediator, also between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. A mediator is one who brings two parties together. It's one, a mediator is one who brings peace to two parties. You know, God the Father's justice would cry out, the penalty for sin needs to be paid. Mike's penalty needs to be enforced for his sin. And then we have a mediator who is saying, it's been paid for by my blood. It's already paid for. You know, any accusation that anyone could bring against us before the Lord, if that were all possible, Jesus just is like our attorney saying, no, it's covered. It's paid for. It's taken care of by my blood. We have the Son of God as our mediator to Father God. What a great deal we get as children of God. He's continually our mediator, continually our intercessor. And it's through this that mankind can have peace with God. And it's the only way that we can have peace with God. There is no other way to have peace with God except through Jesus Christ. And by peace with God, I mean having a relationship with him other than one of hostility and enmity. You know, the unbeliever is considered an enemy of God. It's the weirdest thing. It's an enemy of God, but he loves them so much that he makes salvation available to them if they just receive the gift. But until they do, they're an enemy and an an enmity with God. So the Bible shows us he's a high priest, a mediator, an intercessor. It also shows us, and this is a, a verse that brings a little bit of comfort whenever we're at a funeral, right? I go to prepare a place for you. And he does. Look at verse uh, one, 1 through 3 of John chapter 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus said. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It's amazing. In my mind, when I've read that scripture so many times, I just think, well, he's going up there and I'm going to have my own castle. I'm going to have this unbelievable room in heaven. Well, that may well be true. I don't know. But I think that's way too small. That's way too small. What he's preparing is much greater a place. And I'll just give you a hint. It's called a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. What he's preparing for us, we can't, again, imagine. Well, we can maybe imagine, but we can't understand because our finite mind cannot grasp the realities of an infinite mind, an eternal mind. 
He has prepared a place for us. John, in the book of Revelation, the, the writer of the Gospel of John, in Revelation, he's given a picture. He's given a revelation, at least in part, of what it looks like that Jesus is going to prepare for us. It says in John, uh, Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and I saw a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready, made ready. He's preparing a place as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among men and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. He goes on and says, Behold, I am making all things new. All things new. I don't know. He created all that we know, and according to Genesis, in six days, and then he rested. He's been ascended into heaven for a little over 2,000 years. I can hardly wait to see the finished product. And it's promised to us because of Jesus and what he's doing now as the ascended Lord, ascended Savior. And everybody's offered this opportunity. Everybody. I've said this before. I'd like to repeat it. God sends no one to hell. Now, I'm not a heretic saying there is no hell. I'm saying God sends no one to hell. He offers the gift of salvation to all. The Bible's clear that all will have an opportunity to hear and they will be held accountable to what they hear and then he will judge them on how they respond to what they hear. So everybody has a choice, heaven or hell. In the Bible, we see number four, he has an authority and a power to judge. This gets a little nerve-wracking if you're on the wrong side of the deal. When you read some of these scriptures about his judging, you need to understand a couple things. There is a physical death that's sometimes talked about, but there's also the word death is used to describe those that are spiritually dead. And when there's a judgment, there is two different judgments. You know, you can argue about how many resurrections there are going to be and when they happen and all that stuff, but we can, I think, agree that everybody's going to be resurrected. That's going to happen. And there's two distinct judgments, I believe, and we're all going to face one of them. So when we look at him as judge, I'm not going to read all of John chapter 5, verse 24 through 29. But it tells us that God the Father gave authority to execute judgment to Jesus as the Son of Man. And it declares that all that even are in the tombs, in other words, all that are dead, everybody's going to be raised and everybody's going to be judged. He who hears the word and believes, hears and believes, believes to the point of acting upon what we hear, not just agreeing with, he who hears and believes will go on to eternal life. But he who chooses to hear and, and reject will also go on to eternal life. But instead of eternal life in our mind, which means in the presence of God forever and ever and ever, eternal life for the unbeliever means eternal damnation, eternity in hell, and all that that is, and be eternally separated from God. No good, no light, all evil, all darkness, all torment. And Jesus, there will be what is called the white throne judgment. The white throne judgment is the judgment 
where you want to have the book opened, and it's called the what? Book of Life, Lamb's Book of Life. Guess what? You want your name in that baby. When he opens the Lamb's Book of Life, you're in. You don't need to worry about a thing. But if you're not in, you will be spending eternity in hell. No second chances. There's no purgatory. There's no penance that will get you out. You're not going to get a chance to hear the sermon one more time. It's done. That's why it's important we don't wait. That when we have an opportunity and know what we should do and we know the Holy Spirit's drawn us, we need to respond to the Holy Spirit because we don't know what's going to happen on your way home from church today. And you need to have made the right choice. Then there's a second judgment. And it's, you'll see it referenced as the judgment seat of Christ. And that word judgment in the judgment seat of Christ is actually the Greek word bima. Some of you may have heard of the bima seat of Christ. But the bima seat of Christ, that's the one that we should enjoy. Although there is going to be a loss. You, the bima seat of Christ, your salvation is not at risk. Not at risk at all. I want to read in 1 Corinthians 3. I kind of maybe jumping around on you a little bit here. 1 Corinthians 3. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man will be, work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will testify the quality of each man's work. If a man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. If a man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. At the Bema Seat of Christ, that's a Greek word, Bema. And what it really means is, it's the picture in the Greek mind when they had all the Greek athletic games, like our Olympics, so to speak. The Bema Seat, the Bema was where they went to receive their rewards. There are going to be rewards in heaven for the way we live here on earth after we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. How many of you want all the rewards you can get? I don't know. It says there's going to be a loss. I don't know how this all works. I don't pretend to because I know there's going to be no sadness, no grief, no tears or anything in heaven. But I, gotta be, I think I'd cry over what I've blown. But we're going to get rewards. I don't know what they are. The Bible doesn't tell us directly what they are. There's a lot of conjecture in theological circles. Some think it's the number of jewels that's going to be in our crown. I guess the scriptures maybe hint at that. Uh, Brother Chuck Porta, who's been down here before, or kind of recently actually, he, he reads the scripture and studies the scripture, and he thinks the rewards will determine how close you get to be to the throne of God when you're worshiping. That'd be pretty cool too. But the reality is Jesus has been given the authority by the Father to be the judge. The white throne judgment, we don't want anything to do with that. The Bema Seat of Christ judgment, we want all the rewards we can get. I think we can be greedy for the rewards because it will come out of a love and a commitment and obedience to the Lord. And I could go on. But last but not least, number five. The Bible shows us that one day he's preparing to come back and rule the world. Well, I got a lot of scriptures there, but write this down if you're writing them down. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Talks about Jesus coming with a white horse and his army coming with him. 
The trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ will be raised from the dead. They'll go up and meet him in the sky. Again, what a great picture. He's coming back. He's coming back to rule and reign. He will be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's going to rule. There's going to be a... There's, and you can t- check me out on this, but it looks to me like there's going to be some sort of wrestling match. Because the serpent, the devil... He says he's going to be basically wrestled, bound, and cast into the pit of hell for a thousand years. Those words sound like a wrestling match to me. And we know who wins. For a thousand years, there's going to be no temptation. A thousand years, Jesus is coming to reign. And then if you want to write down Revelations 20, verses 1 through 4. And then you can go back to Revelations 21, verses 1 through 5, where it talks about when he comes. Try to picture this. Jesus is coming. The old earth, the old heavens are going to pass away. They're going to be gone. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And there's going to be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more grief, no more sickness, no more disease, no more poverty, no more famines, no more earthquakes, nothing but the goodness and blessings of God in his very presence for all who accept him as their Lord and Savior. So it always boils down to the same question. First of all, do you know this stuff about Jesus? Do you know what he's doing right now because he loves you so much? I mean, he's preparing something for us beyond our, our imaginations. Just, I don't know about you, but I think I keep him pretty busy interceding for between me and the Father God. It's like, oh, boy, I'm glad he's there. I blew it again. Glad his blood was there. I, I, I messed up again. I don't have to live in guilt. I don't have to live in shame. I don't have to live in condemnation. I just try to do better as the Holy Spirit leads and guides and directs. He's there as our mediator, our intercessor. Is he your mediator? Is he your intercessor? You know, if he's not, there's no one. There's no defense. The justice of God, as I said earlier, is crying out that the wages and penalty for sin be paid. And if Jesus is not your intercessor, not your mediator, there is no defense. You will one day pay the price if you've not decided to accept Christ before your last day on earth comes to pass. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I pray you continue to give us a greater and greater revelation of Jesus. God, give us the grace to do the diligence to discover in your word how amazing he is. That as we know him better, we will love him more. And as we love him more, we'll desire to know him better. And as we know him better, we'll love him more. And it's just an amazing cycle. God, I pray that that's what you would birth in each one of our hearts, that that I would have a desire to know Jesus better. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here who doesn't know him at all, they may know about him, but they've never had an experience with him, a personal experience. They've never accepted the gift of salvation through Christ. The day would be the day they would admit to themselves that I am a sinner. I'm guilty. I deserve death. 
but I believe Jesus is the only Son of God. And He came to earth and died to pay the price for my sins. And that you raised Him from the dead as evidence and proof that His sacrifice was sufficient and that we too will one day be raised. And we then surrender our life to Him. I pray if you've never done that, today would be your day to do just that. Lord, I pray that our lives would glorify you. I pray that we would be building rewards here on earth as we try to advance your kingdom by the leading of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would watch over each of us as we go our separate way this week. Bless us. Keep us safe. God, guard our hearts and minds. God, give us a boldness to to speak the truth in love. Give us the love of Jesus flowing through us. That each one of us would bring glory and honor to what your Son has done and just please you as our Heavenly Father. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.